You're listening to the Harris Beach Podcast, a show that explores evolving issues in the law and how they shape organizations, the way business is conducted, and how we live and work. The information provided in this episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials are for general informational purposes only. Thanks for listening. Here's today's host. Hello, my name is Melissa Peterson from Harris Beach, and I'm your host for today's episode. I'm joined by LJ DeRigo, co-leader of the Harris Beach Immigration Law Practice Group. LJ, thank you for joining us. Let's start by having you share something you enjoy about practicing immigration law. Sure. So I think for immigration, for me, it's it's the ability to really affect someone's life. I feel like in no other area of law do you really have such an impact on somebody. So we work with business owners, corporate HR, and then the foreign national employees coming into the U.S. And it's a very personal area of law, whereas other areas of law like litigation or corporate, it, it, you're more removed from the, the personal aspects of representation. But for immigration, you're directly affecting somebody's life. And, and I've actually had clients name their children after me just because we made such an impact on them. Um, you know, they're looking to pursue the American dream and we help people achieve that. So it's a very personal area. Also, it gives me the ability to not only work with individuals, but also large corporations. So my practice really stems the the entire spectrum. So we do represent individual foreign nationals and family-based immigration issues, but also we represent large multinational corporations. We represent, um, you know, the largest public health care system in the the country, the largest educational institution in the country, and then we do landscape companies. So, you know, I I get my corporate fix, but I also get that personal fix with, with representing individuals and foreign national employees directly. So as you mentioned, it's a time of lots of uh, changes and shifting dynamics, and workplaces today are becoming increasingly diverse, multinational, and multicultural in the process. What are the typical issues or challenges that companies might have in managing this global workforce in today's climate? On the corporate end, so what I do on a, on a day-to-day basis is I advise employers on legal hiring practices and avoiding discrimination. We, um, we work with employers to analyze job descriptions and the foreign national candidates' background in education and, and sort of formulate the best visa strategy to onboard them. We also screen foreign national applicants to determine what their immigration needs may be. Some of them are here on a visa and we need to change them to a visa that allows them to work or they're outside the U.S. and we need to find the, the best vehicle to get them into the U.S. We also counsel employers on, on document and file maintenance requirements, including I-9 compliance. And, that, and that's been really a big focus right now in, in this era of ever-increasing enforcement. And would you say immigration policy has changed or shifted in the current political climate? And if so, how can employers best prepare for or respond to those changes? So I think I've personally seen more changes in immigration practice over the past three years than in all my years of practicing combined. It's a different time right now. And, and not only 
are we seeing the effects on illegal immigration? We see a big focus on that, but also we're seeing the impacts on legal immigration and limiting the number of people that arrive, that, that are able to come into the US. And the fascinating thing about this to me is that all of these changes are happening without an actual change in the law. And we refer to this as the silent wall. So these are subtle changes in regulatory interpretation. These are executive orders that are essentially changing the entire immigration system. And you know, it's hard to believe that a stroke of a pen could do that, but, but it does. Every single day, there's a change that happens. I, I'm in the office at 6.30 in the morning. The first thing I do is check my emails, check the listservs, um, you know, check the USCIS website for something that has changed overnight because something's changed, whether it's a filing address or a policy interpretation, something's different. And I think as immigration lawyers, it's both exciting for us because it's so dynamic, but it's also very troubling because it affects our clients on the corporate side and, and the individual side. So I think you know things are becoming much more difficult. We're seeing huge surge in enforcement activities. Just the statistics alone are staggering. So in terms of I-9 audits and worksite enforcements, we've seen a 300% increase in 2018 over 2017. So for I-9 audits, um, this year, we, so far, we've seen 5,981 I-9 audits versus 1,691 in 2017. So you see that there's a huge shift and a huge focus on employers in terms of requiring compliance. You know, for years we saw enforcement priorities in effect that really targeted those criminal aliens that were a danger to the U.S or um, individuals that have committed crimes or, or came into the US were ordered deported and, and never left. Now we're seeing an entire shift in enforcement to employers. So the government's now going after employers because they feel like they're the magnet for our illegal immigration problem. So, you know, and, and, and prior to, you know, even last year, we saw a, a heavy focus on certain industries like agriculture, um, manufacturing, where it was more likely that they'd have workers that were undocumented, you know, working at their facilities. But now it's it's everybody. It's every employer across the spectrum that that's now encountering um, I-9 audits and worksite investigations. There's also another, um, you know, policy change at the Department of State level now requiring any individuals applying for a green card outside the U.S. at a consulate. Um, they have to be able to demonstrate that they're, they'll have health insurance coverage within within 30 days of their arrival here. So that was through an executive order as well, and and that one has not been enjoined yet. So we're we're waiting to see what happens with litigation. A lot of our partner organizations are looking for a, a ripe case um, in order to to file suit. And the hope is that will be enjoined as well, just like the, the other public charge rules. But you know, some of the other, just to put um, a little more context to this, some of the other changes that we're seeing on the employment-based side, which has really dramatically impacted our practice, is um, you know, there's, there was a rescission of prior policy that allowed US citizenship and immigration officers to give deference to prior approvals. So a lot of times for a visa application, if an employer is just filing an, ex an extension of that process, nothing's changed. You would think that um, you know, if it was approved once, nothing's changed, it'll be approved again on extension. But you know, what we're seeing now is that officers are no longer giving any deference or paying any attention to the fact that this was already adjudicated three years ago, and they're treating it as a brand new application. And we're seeing, even seeing denials 
um, on the same exact position, same exact applicant um, with, with no changes. So there's a lot of inconsistency there. And, and at one time, we could really rely on a prior approval to have confidence that it was going to be approved. But um, that, that, does, that doesn't exist anymore. So given that everything is kind of in flux, inconsistent, flipped on its head, bringing greater scrutiny, are there ways that you can help clients uh, meet new challenges or solve problems? And if so, can you share an example? So I think, you know, it really is is trying is being creative and thinking outside the box in terms of how we respond to requests for evidence. Um, there, there's only so much that you can do in, in connection with the response like that where we're operating in a period of complete uncertainty. And, and beyond that, it, it complicates things that we have USCIS adjudicators applying inconsistent interpretations and inconsistent policies. So, you know, we may be fine on, on an application filed um, with the service center and then on another very similar application, we're, we're running into issues and having requests for evidence. So what we're doing now is I think when we're preparing a visa petition, we want to try to preempt a request for evidence. And, and we're now required to submit more documentation than we ever have before to, to sort of anticipate maybe what that officer may require. But the rates of, of RFE responses are staggering. And, and that's more likely than not that we're going to receive a request for additional evidence after a petition filing. You know, I think one of the other things that I'm seeing um, recently in, is in connection with some of my seasonal business employers, so in you know farms and, and landscape companies, in finding reliable labor. So you know th those industries are limited to um, a seasonal visa called an H two A or H two B. Those are becoming increasingly more difficult to obtain because we're seeing an enormous surge in demand for these seasonal visas, and the reason for that is because. There, there aren't any U.S. workers here that really want these temporary seasonal positions. When our unemployment rate as it is at a historic low as it is, there are other opportunities out there um, for U.S. workers that have benefits that are full-time and not seasonal. So that really leaves a gap in, in the seasonal business sector. So a lot of these businesses are, are relying exclusively on, on these seasonal visas, which are extremely limited. And this year alone, they, we received over 100,000 visa requests for 33,000 slots. So it, it's just so oversubscribed at this point that a lot of employers are turning to green card programs. So we are filing a record number of green card applications for farms, for landscape companies in order to permanently solve their labor shortages. So this is a huge shift in, in what we've seen for prior years. But the growth in that particular practice for this industry sector is huge. And I think it provides us the opportunity to give them a solution to a problem that has been festering for a number of years that has now become unworkable. Um, the green card program will allow them to bring in um, labor permanently and not have to go through a lottery system through through these seasonal visa programs. So in other words, with a green card, they wouldn't have to keep reapplying? Right. When, when someone gets a green card, they're, they're, they can live and work here permanently. A lot of people confuse um, green card from U.S. citizenship, but they are, they are different but similar. So the only difference between someone being born in the U.S. and having a green card as a permanent resident is that 
you can't vote in an election, you can't run for public office, and if you commit a crime, you're going to be deported instead of thrown in jail like we would. Um, but but it's no, it's not tied to any particular employer anymore. So it really is a permanent solution. And, and once they get a green card, again, they can they can work here and live here without any restriction. Thank you for joining me today. Is there anything we missed that you'd like to bring up? I just want to mention that, you know, we see when you turn on the TV and, and, and watch the news, you know, immigration is really one of the most polarizing debates of our time. And I think it's, it's really important to step back and think about it um, and not let, you know, political views really sway your opinion. I think it, it's, it's, it's a way that, you know, you, you need to look at it carefully and, and think about what your, your own philosophy is. Um, and it's also important to separate um, the issues out. So we need to separate illegal immigration from legal immigration. They're very different things. And I think a lot of times we get so overzealous that, you know, we, we start impacting legal immigration and restricting that. Um, I think most people would agree that we have an illegal immigration problem here and, and that there needs to be a solution to that. But what we also find is that it can go farther into limiting legal immigration, whether it's family-based categories or employment-based immigration. And a lot of this, again, is stemming from the um, Buy American, High American executive order. And, and, the, and the overarching philosophy and myth that the only reason any employer would hire a foreign worker or import foreign labor is because it's cheap labor. And that is my biggest pet peeve in practicing immigration law is that perception because it's dangerous. There is never a reason for any employer to ever hire a foreign worker over a U.S. worker. It's three to four times more expensive. Um, in, in, in most cases, it's only a temporary fix. So it's always more preferable to an employer to hire a U.S. worker. So then you have to ask yourself the question, well, why would they do it? Well, the answer is simple. It's because they cannot find a legal qualified workforce in the U.S. to fill these positions. That really is the only realistic explanation because it's certainly not a matter of it being less expensive. But I think it's important when we're, when we're coming up with immigration policy, we, we really need to think about the human side of it, and it needs to be a humane solution that represents com compromises by, by both sides of the immigration debate. LJ, thank you for joining me today. For more information, including how to get in touch with LJ and subscribe to our immigration blog, visit harrisbeach.com slash immigration. Thanks for listening to the Harris Beach Podcast. Be sure to visit harrisbeach.com to join the conversation and access show notes. Please rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast.